We'll read the whole thing, starting at least beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 through verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work on the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, and is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you speak to us? Lord, we want to hear not just the voice of a man, but we want to hear you speak through your word. So would you come and make your word um, be real in our lives today? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. One of the many pleasures God has given us is food and the variety of options and flavors. We enjoy comfort foods like fried chicken, mashed potatoes, biscuits, and gravy. We savor items like a T-bone steak or a hearty stew. We stuff ourselves with desserts from ice cream to fried pies and everything in between. This week, most of us We'll enjoy a lavish Thanksgiving feast with turkey, rolls, cranberry sauce, pumpkin pie, and to make sure our belts are undone, stuffing. The type of food you're eating, though, often dictates the way that you eat it. For Thanksgiving, most people will have overflowing plates and then pieces of pie with mounds of whipped cream. Yet if we went to a five-course meal, the servings would be much smaller and the eating process would be much slower. Rather than mounds of food, it would be smaller, but more intense flavors. And as one takes these bites, one lingers over each bite to savor the subtle variances and nuances. Our study of Ephesians is more like the ornate five-course meal in which we take each word and phrase and turn it over and over to get all of the flavor out of it. But one of the problems of slowing down and looking at all of these wonderful truths and details, we can lose the big picture. So let's begin by reminding ourselves of the larger picture of chapter 2. It began in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul was diagnosing the human condition that before God we are spiritually dead. Every single one of us. And we may do spiritual activities, we may act like we're spiritual, but true spirituality submits to God. It listens to God's word. You know, it's a life that doesn't focus on self. It's a life that focuses on God. And yet our innate desire is to serve ourselves. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Well, Paul continued that this gets manifested and encouraged through the temptations in the world, our flesh and the devil. And the result of our dead spiritual condition is given in verse 3 
that we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So, on a horizontal level, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 are quite discouraging. They seem quite hopeless. And yet, verse 4 has an amazing contrast. But God, God, due to his riches of his mercy, acted to save us. God declares himself and acts, showing he is gracious and merciful. He'll never overlook sin, but he'd rather show mercy than judgment. The amazing thing is that God's riches of mercy were given to us, as it says, even when we were dead in sin, even when we were rebelling against him. You know, our response when someone does something to us is to get vengeance, to be bitter, to be angry. God's first response was to offer forgiveness, hope, love. He wants us to know him as father, not as judge. Well, hopefully that helps out the context. And so today, we're going to dive into verses 5 through 7. In the first two verses, 5 and 6, we see God's actions for us in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7, we see, well, why did God do that? What's the reason? Well, God's reason. So first, verses 5 and 6, God's actions. And Paul tells us that God did three things first for us. First, he made us alive. Now, made us alive is actually one Greek word in the original. And the only other place that's used in the New Testament is Colossians 2.13 that says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Sin caused our spiritual death, and thus God's forgiveness brings spiritual life. And throughout scripture, we see God bringing life out of death. Hold your finger here and turn to John chapter 11. And John chapter 11 is one of the times in which Jesus brings someone from death to life. You may remember the story. His friend Lazarus is sick, and they're told he's sick. And he says, we'll wait a couple days. And then when he says go, his disciples say, well, if he's sick, he's going to get better. But then notice John chapter 11, verse 14. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So Jesus and his disciples go, and notice in verse 21, he's going to interact with Martha, Lazarus' sister, and notice their exchange, verse 21. It says, Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that you will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Well, there's more exchanges. Jesus goes and interacts with Mary. And then in verse 38, we see Jesus come to the tomb. In verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, 
you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This isn't the only time. Jesus also healed the, brought back to life, we should say, the daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow in Nain. Yet it's not just that God can bring life out of death, something that's already lived before. God can bring life from nothing. That's when he created the world, he spoke, and what was not there came into being. It had life. Though the situation is impossible for us, God's power isn't even tasted by death. That's why Martha's warning, well, look, Lord, four days, it's really going to stink. Jesus is not phased. To him, it doesn't matter if Lazarus had been dead four days or 400 days. What mattered was his power, power that can bring life from death. I want us to notice an important implication of what Paul's saying. And that is, the fact that God brings us to life out of death is showing us that the greatest issue we have is not being moral, but that we need to be born again. The, it, the truth of Christianity is preached that what we need is not to become moral people, but what we need is to be born again. Now this has often been a confusion to people because they mistake religion, they mistake Christianity with morality. That, oh yeah, the Bible wants me to be good, patient, kind, all those things. Well, yes, it does want you to do those things, but that is the result of God bringing you to new life. And even religious people often miss this. We're in John, so flip back eight chapters to John chapter 3. In John 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus, this religious leader, still isn't getting it. So verse 9 continues, Nicodemus said to them, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who 
descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, we need something, and we can't do it. Now the humanism of the West rebels against this because we want to be the master of our fate, the captain of our souls. Yet it is God who controls our life and destiny. Now you can raise your hand if you want, but which of you sent a petition to your parents to be born? Which of you cast a vote? Yes, I want to be born in on this day. Well, none of us. None of us had anything to do with being born. In the same way, we must be born again. And we did not send God a vote, a petition, or a mandate to be born spiritually. Now that's not to say we're mere puppets who have no role, for Jesus said, whoever believes in him, the Son of Man may have eternal life. Thus we have a role, but that role is just merely to believe. And nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. And the point I'm trying to make is that we must always be clear in the distinction between moralism and Christianity. Sadly, as I stated earlier, many in the U.S. believe Christianity's basic message is, well, you should be a good person. You should follow the rules of the Bible. And if you are a good person, you do what the Bible says, then God will let you into heaven. Yet Christianity is not primarily about rules that need to be followed, but rather good news that we rejoice in and trust. It's about God coming down in Christ so that dead people might be born again. C.S. Lewis, near the end of his classic work, Mere Christianity, explains it like this. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. God's redemption begins with making us new by the power of Christ. Thus, the call of the Bible to be moral, to obey God's word, only flows out of that. Our message is Christ crucified, not here are the Ten Commandments, now go and obey. Those flow out of wanting to honor Christ crucified. Or, as to use Lewis's language, when we have the wings that make us a horse that can fly. Us trusting in Jesus leads us to be born again from our dead spiritual condition. And this is the good news, the gospel, the power of God, even the power to overcome sin's allure. Some of you may have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And he says this very pithily in referring to moral rules or the law, or we might say morality, in contrast to the gospel. He writes, Run, John, run, morality demands but gives him neither feet nor hands. Much sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. We've been called to a life that we cannot do. And so only by faith in Christ, in the gospel, are we given new life. So flip back to Ephesians chapter 2, because there we'll notice how all of this, the new life, everything we have, is only due to our connection to Christ. So back in Ephesians chapter 2, God did three things, and we've touched on the first one. But notice again in verse 5. Verse 5, even when we are dead in our transgressions, He made us alive 
notice, together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Over and over, Paul is making clear the spiritual blessings you have only happen in connection to Christ. With him, with him, with him, and in Christ Jesus. You know, we don't get benefits from Christ as though he's a wealthy benefactor who just sends some money down to us and not connected to us at all. Now he's the vine. We are the branches, and it's as we live in him that we have spiritual fruit and life. It's interesting, in Paul's exuberance of all that we have given, been given in Christ, he blurts out, by grace you've been saved. Now that's a wonderful truth, but it really seems to break the flow of thought between verses 5 and 6. But as though Paul is so excited talking about what Christ has done that he just can't help it. Well, it's by grace. It's so wonderful that we've been saved by grace. You know, grace is getting what you don't deserve. You know, God had to be just, but he did not have to show mercy and love. Only to God's amazing grace does he cause dead sinners to be come back to life. And it's really interesting when you consider what Paul is saying against the background of his life. I say this because if morality is what it was all about, then Paul is your man. In Philippians chapter 3, he described himself like this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So, if you want a blameless, moral guy, Paul is your man. And yet, notice back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he said, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. So how can Paul in Philippians say, I was a moral guy, I was honoring God, and yet here in Ephesians he says, I was walking in the passions of the flesh. It's because one of the ways people try to run from God is not the wild rebellion of the prodigal son, but the perfect moralism of the older son. It's doing what's right, but for all the wrong reasons. Yet the point is, whether you rebelled against God with partying or perfection, you were dead and need new life, not just morality. Donald, Donald Barnhouse was a longtime pastor in Philadelphia, and he was once asked what it would look like if Satan were ever to take complete control of the city. I don't know what you would answer. If Satan had complete control of Wichita Falls, what would it look like? Well, Barnhouse replied, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. In other words... The way Satan would lead people from God is not through sending them all down the road of the prodigal that leaves them at the end going, I'm in this muck and mire. At least I should go back to the father. It's the way of the elder brother that, well, I deserve this. I've done all of this for God. It's through the self-perfect, the self-righteous. People who are deceived in thinking that they are alive merely because they're moral. So do you, do we see our need for Christ? 
Have you recognized that only God's grace will fix your condition? No matter how hard you try, you'll never be able to fix it yourself. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps or gives grace to the humble. Those who realize their efforts to make themselves clean, that those efforts are empty and instead they turn to Christ. For those of us who do, not only does God make us alive, but we also see in verse 6 that God raised us up and seated us. Now, you may have noticed as we were reading that, that it's very interesting that all of those verbs are in the past tense. We were made alive, not making us alive. We were raised up, not will raise us. And he has seated us, not will seat us, future. What Paul is saying is, from the divine perspective, what Christ did is so given to us, it's as though we did it. That we have already been crucified, risen, born again, and seated with Christ. It's not just here, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Not, I will be, or I am being, but I have been. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. <laughs> Saying the same thing, we were raised. Thus, by faith, when Christ died on Calvary, you died. When Christ rose again three days later, you rose. When Christ was seated at the hand of, right hand of the Father, you were seated. So you should let your past define you. Your past as it's tied to Christ. Because that is secure. Now while this passage and the others I reference are talking about how from a divine perspective we're so connected to Christ that we've already been dead, risen, seated. There are other passages that talk about the future tense. You can even see that here in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance. Past tense. We've been given an inheritance. But then verse 14 the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So, what God has given us is so secure because of our connection to Christ that we can look at it as all past tense. And yet we don't fully enjoy it all now, so the New Testament can also talk about it future tense. Our future is secure. So, as one person put it, you're seated with Christ. Your place at his table can never be lost. Your name card will never be removed. Your eternity with Christ is absolutely secure. And yet, all of this poses the question, why would God even do all of this? And we could point to many things. We were in John 3 earlier. We stopped at verse 15. We could have read verse 16. God did it because he loved the world. Or we could point to God wanting to be the just and the justifier. But is there a reason behind those reasons? Well, I think Paul gives it in verse 7. This is our second point. God's reason. Ephesians 2, 7. It says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God wanted to show us. He wanted us to see the immeasurable riches of his grace. Now, I know that might sound odd. So let me give some verses of other places that show that God wants to show us his character. Then let's some consider some possible problems people might have with that. And then we'll conclude 
by looking at this context, what God wants to show us. First, let's consider other verses in which God declares he acts to show his character. When God speaks to Pharaoh, he says in Exodus 9.16, But for this reason I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wanted to show Pharaoh, and then show us through Pharaoh, his power. As 2 Corinthians 4.7 says, But we have this treasure, the treasure in that context being the gospel of Jesus, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God wants to show the world his power, whether that be through the mighty Pharaoh or through broken vessels that are jars of clay like us. Either way, though, God wants to show his power. Well, it's not just his power, though, that God wants to show. You know, Jesus came for many reasons to the Jews, but notice what it says in Romans 15:8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God wanted to demonstrate. He wanted to show that he is a truth-telling God, and thus he acted by sending Christ to the circumcised Jews. Or God set up the sacrificial system that, as Romans 3.25-27 says, God put him, meaning Christ, forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus we've seen verses that declare the reason God's acts is to show his power. It's to show his truthfulness. It's to show his righteousness. Or here in Ephesians 2 7, it's to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. In other words, what compels God to act is that he might reveal himself to us. Yet, that might raise a concern in many minds because to show us sounds a lot like being a show off. And we despise show offs. You see her coming and you think, oh, can I avoid her or otherwise the next hour I'm going to hear about how wonderful her grandchildren are? You know your coworker or cousin, you think, oh, I sure hope their sports team loses today because if they win, they're going to be talking about it the whole next week. You're in a conversation with that one person who always has to one-up everything. You tell of your five-pound bass, they call it ten-pound. You tell of your recent trip to France, they've been there twice. You got a raise, they're on their third raise this year. When God wants to show his character, he should not be compared to the show-offs that we think of for two reasons. First, whereas when humans show off, they show their talents or highlight things, it's never related to reality. You know, no human is best at everything. Yes, they do have some gifts given by God, but they don't have it in and of themselves. In contrast, God is the best at everything, and he's the source of being the best at everything. Second, not only does God deserve praise, but we are better ourselves when he shows us who he is so that we praise him. You know, the more God shows us his truthfulness, the more we trust him, which is better for us. The more we understand God's serving nature, 
the more it compels us to want to serve others, which leads us to true greatness. Now just consider a situation in your workplace or in your home where you have a problem and everyone wants to come and show you how to fix it, but they don't actually know. And yet one person who does know how to fix it goes, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to be humble. I'm not going to go declare that I know how to fix this. Well, that's not loving. If they know how to fix your problem, they come and say, hey, if you do this, this, and this, or if you hit the button on the Wi-Fi, it comes on. It's simple. It's not humility to say, I don't know, I'm just going to sit here. God shows off his character not to boast, but because it serves us. It's for our good. Now, realizing God's primary motivation is to show his character helps us better understand God's relation to evil and suffering. You know, when people try to understand all of God's actions through his love, it makes the challenge, and it is a challenge to understand, God's relationship to evil and suffering. Yet, if all of God's actions are to show his character, then it doesn't remove the challenge intellectually of evil and suffering, but it does give a better perspective. What I mean by that is if God did not allow evil and suffering, then he would have never been able to display the riches of his grace. There would never be anything undeserved. Yes, we would know his love for all eternity, but we would never see his wrath against sin. We never see his perfect justice that would send his own son. We never see the depth of his love that would send his son. And because God wants to show off his character, he allows, again, not that that is all of the answer, but he allows evil and suffering. As well, recognizing this keeps us from saying things that are not only silly, but unbiblical. Like we should be guarded from saying, well, God does things because he's lonely. Or God acted because he knew how perfect we'd be and he couldn't live without us. The reality is, life is not about us. It's about him. And when he is known, that's when we also truly enjoy life. On our passage... God specifically wants to show the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us in Christ. Immeasurable. Can't be measured, counted, contained. For all of eternity, we will be amazed at the boundless, immeasurable kindness of God in Christ. We sang earlier, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. In a minute, we're going to sing a song. It is not death to die, our song of the month. And really, that song fits in so well with this passage. Here we sing, it is not death to hear. The key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. That's what this passage is about, to praise him evermore. As one commentator says, your death is not an end. It's the beginning. It's not a wall. It's a door. It's not an exit. It's an entrance. And that's what we read earlier in Revelation 5. What are the people going to be rejoicing in? What are we going to be rejoicing in? Worthy is the lamb. The lamb that shows kindness. The lamb that had been the lion and gave up being the lion so that he might be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. This is not a boastful show-off, but a humble 
revealer who wants us to know the deepest, richest mercy and kindness in the world that, that only comes in Christ. Let me conclude with this story. You may have heard of H.A. Ironside. He was a pastor in Chicago for many years. And once he was speaking in Chicago, and after speaking, he was going to go down to the beach. So he got onto a streetcar, and a woman approached him, a fortune teller, and she promised, I can give you your past, your present, and your future. I never fail. Cross my palm with a quarter, I will tell you all. Ironside replied, really is not necessary, because I've had my fortune told already, and I have a little book in my pocket that gives my past, my present, and future. Let me read it to you. Here's my past. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and were by nature children of wrath as the rest of mankind. Well, the fortune teller didn't really want to hear this, but he pressed on, he gently held her arm, and he added, I want to give you my present also. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now she was really wanting to get out of there, but he finished, let me say one more thing, you must get it. You're not going to have to pay me a quarter for it either. I'm giving it to you for nothing. It is my past, my present, and my future. Here is my future. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So is that your past, your present, your future? It can be if you merely humble yourself, admitting your sin and turning to Christ. For all those who do, they're made alive. They're raised and they're seated where for all eternity we will know and enjoy God's riches of kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we cling to our past, our present, our future in Christ. May we see the riches we have in Him. Lord, we get our eyes focused on all the things here on earth. May we see what joy what pleasure, what hope there is in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.